there, there isn't always a recognition that, well, this institution is not going to survive if, if demographics of, uh, of prospective students, uh, of alums are disconnected from our institution and don't feel um, that there's a reason to be connected to, to it. I know for myself, I need to see that there's a seriousness at every level of the institution in their commitment to, to transform the culture. Um, and not just do kind of performative tokenism or um, or just kind of an add-on thing that's not really connected to the overall uh, direction and culture of the institution. everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, the podcast where we get to speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. My guest today is my good friend and nationally recognized leader in institutional diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, Dr. Amir Ahmed. Amir is a frequent keynote speaker and the founder of AFA Diversity Consulting, LLC, and he has contributed to national conversations on race, equity, and inclusion through national news outlets and documentary films, and so, so very much more. And so, uh, as always, we'll include a link uh, to his full bio in the episode notes. But for now, I am very pleased to welcome Amir to the Ingenious You community. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I should say welcome you back. <laughs> because yeah. you were you were with us, um, I think in the first uh, maybe the first season, uh, yeah. right as the pandemic was beginning to uh, take hold. So a lot has happened since <laughs> that first conversation. Now, uh, you have assumed a new role since our last conversation. You are now the vice provost for diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of Vermont. You have had many opportunities placed in front of you, I know, and you've actually touched many different institutions. So why did you take this job and what excites you about the work that you're doing at UVM? And do you have a vision? I imagine you do, knowing you, that you mm -hmm. have a vision for the work there. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's an opportunity to do some uh, some really powerful work at University of Vermont. Uh, I've been fortunate to have been connected to the institution as a consultant in the past, so I have good relationships. And I think there's a broad-based desire, interest, uh, and effort um, that is happening at the university. But, but I, I think it, it, there's a um, need to be able to get a little bit more strategic and systemic in how we embed uh, good practices throughout the institution. And I think that's what they were looking for. And so I, I think there was a good institutional fit um, in relationship to my skills, what I bring to the table. I also have a great team around me and that really helps. And these days you definitely cannot take that for granted. I, I mean, we're we're understaffed like anybody else, but, uh, but in terms of the leadership I, around me uh, in my team, I, I just, I can't ask for a better group of people to work with either. Now, what's your vision? Uh, you know, I'm grounded in inclusive excellence. And, uh, you know, we're an institution that is, you know, our president is 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 taking us down the road to uh, it, what we hope is our one status. But we're, we're not a massive institution. And so we have this interesting um, balance between uh, being a research institution, but we, we also value teaching. Um, and... Uh, I also think that the, the commitment to sustainability at, in, in the state of Vermont, at the University of Vermont, 
that is something that's very real. Um, and there's been an emergent commitment amongst a number of constituencies to connect that to issues of environmental justice, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion more broadly. Um, and I think we have an opportunity to lead on that front um, to attract students who are particularly concerned and interested in those realities. Uh, I also think that we, we have a really interesting commitment to he health equity as well. Um, and so again, I think in, in this time we're seeing students, you know, if they're gonna choose to spend four years of their lives to be able to spend all this time, energy and resources in higher education, you know, with this generation, they wanna create change. They wanna be meaningful change agents in the world with these complex global challenges uh, that also affect local communities. And so for me, I wanna be able to bridge that work between diversity, equity, inclusion, and the broader work of not just academic excellence, but how do we enact change? How do we produce graduates that, that uh, prepare to step out and create that change in the world? And some of the core values of Principal University of Vermont really align with that. And then as a leader of sustainability, it really uh, just creates the environment and the conditions to really um, attract that type of a student profile um, and support that student profile. That's very exciting, and it sounds mm -hmm. like a perfect fit for you. So I see, I see why uh, you were attracted to the to the opportunity. Now, could you take us back a little bit and describe the journey into this field in the first place? How did you get into DEI work as a professional focus, and why have you stayed? Because you've been in this you've been in this mm -hmm. space for many years now, right? Yeah, and, and DEI work is, is a high burnout field, especially these days. So I'm, I'm very proud to still be in it, to be energized by it. Uh, you know, I, I was an activist, um, uh, a hip hop activist using hip hop as creating social change. And that I was engaged in that work um, as part of the hip hop generation, in the early 2000s and beyond um, at the same time in which I was pursuing an academic route. You know, I thought I was going to be a faculty member. I was studying culture, anthropology, and Black studies. Uh, but I was so activist-oriented, and, and, and certainly there are plenty of amazing scholar practitioners uh, and act, uh, scholar activists um, out there. But for me, I was just so oriented around enacting change. And, and when I started to learn about the work in diversity, equity, inclusion, I, I, I saw an opportunity to be able to engage young people out of the classroom, uh, to um, translate access to higher education into meaningful opportunity um, and then connect the resources uh, of our campuses to that broader work beyond the campus in communities with people who I thought were doing really important work with youth and with um, broader communities. And so I always integrated hip hop in, into the work that uh, I did on every campus that I served. Um, and so I, you know, over time, I started to realize that the, the work needed to be systemically embedded into institutions. Um, and I, I realized that a lot of institutions didn't really have a holistic understanding of, of the role DEI plays in overall um, academic work, but also our, 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 our public good mission of higher education, of, of impacting our surrounding communities. Uh, and so for me, I was really attracted to inclusive excellence um, as a framework. And I, I'm fortunate to be mentored by Dr. Dave Williams, um, who actually is from my hometown in, in Ohio. And so um, and he, you know, he uh, wrote some, some of the first papers on inclusive excellence. And, 
And so as I saw that gap between perception of what DEI work is versus, you know, the systemic nature of how we need to embed it, I, I've, I've just increasingly felt the need that to contribute my, my lens, my, my, my perspective. Um, I've also tried to bridge it with global education. As you know, I've, I've, I have a passion. I studied abroad twice in college. I've worked with international students at different institutions I've been at. And, and I, I, we, 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 we live in a world with complex global problems, not just domestic U.S. problems. And so I also am passionate about bridging the work of DEI with global education as well. And, and again, I think that's part of the unique opportunity for higher education in terms of the, the unique trajectories of people that intersect in our institutions. And how do we harness those different perspectives to get more innovative and creative around how we create change through higher education? Hmm. What's your definition of inclusive excellence? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we have to remember that diversity was often positioned as at odds with academic excellence, right? Historically, um, you know, you know, we had the affirmative action kind of approach and kind of around uh, rectifying historical inequity in, in our country, and that and that's important. Um, but as a person who worked at University of Michigan, you know, that went to the Supreme Court to to make the argument that um, diversity had an educational benefit all, you know, the, what it didn't, what they didn't say is that it really requires inclusion for us to harness the different perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences uh, to translate that into an educational benefit for all. And, and in order to do that, you need to have equity, right? And, and, and through that, we can get to a different level of academic excellence. But in order to do that, we need to embed it systemically into every aspect of what we do, including the uh, what we do in the classroom um, in terms of our pedagogy as faculty. And as you know, you know, a lot of our faculty are content experts. They're, they're great researchers, but they're not always taught how to teach. Um, and if, if, if we don't learn how to teach with excellence, we teach the way that we were taught by default, you know, and so, and the reality is that um, good teaching is inclusive teaching, right, and so, uh, and so we need to uh, embed that aspect into uh, every aspect of academic affairs work, but then it needs to connect to our co-curricular experiences and experiential learning and the other aspects of higher education that uh, make up a holistic higher educational experience for our students, uh, and, and so, for me, um, you know, that kind of way of thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion is, is needs to be broadly understood. And, I, and I've noted that that's been a big part of my work at University of Vermont is helping our senior leadership, helping our University Diversity Council, which is made up of people throughout our institution, learn and understand how we weave this into every aspect of what we do, embedding it into strategic planning, having a data-driven approach to this so that we can measure and track progress and connect that to our broader goals as an institution. Yeah, no, and I know that was your approach when you worked with us at Baypath as our consultant. And I found it, as did the faculty, a very refreshing way to approach uh, our work in this space. Now, I'm, I'm curious, because you do touch so many colleges and universities, you, you continue to consult, you have consulted mm -hmm. um, with many institutions and their leaders. What's your sense now as we're coming out of the pandemic um, about what's happening in the American higher education landscape as it relates to DEI work? 
Yeah, well, you know, I think the the pandemic has clearly um, brought the stark inequities of our society in, into high relief. Uh, I think it's it's um, clearly exacerbated some of those inequities. You know, as so many institutions translated uh, transitioned into uh, re remote learning situations, the the unique inequities that are involved. Uh, with uh, with remote learning in terms of um, uh, you know access to technology in terms of people's personal life circumstances and the ability to be able to show up um, with authenticity then also of course the mental health challenge it's just tremendous in our institutions we're already facing that challenge but it's been exacerbated to an exponential degree and then we have the inequities as related to that so, you know, I think institutions really struggled with that, uh, with that uh, broadly. I think some institutions, um, Baypath is a great example, were probably better positioned to make that transition because there was so much remote learning happening already. And whereas a, a number of other institutions um, did not have a faculty that were necessarily ready to make that transition and didn't necessarily always understand the needs that our students had, tremendous challenges. But I also think there's been tremendous discoveries. I've, I've just met so many faculty who this has really taught them a lot around the kinds of realities that our students face. Um, and also the value of vulnerability for our faculty that, you know, that, that when they were in a situation where they were demonstrating that they don't have all the answers around the situations that they find themselves in, they're struggling themselves. And that created an approachability with a lot of faculty members that wasn't there for our students and uh, versus just the, the kind of the intimidation and the sense of uh, that we're socialized into, even if that's not the faculty members intent. Uh, but, you know, we have to view support, what, whether it's our faculty, whether it's our administrator, we have to uh, recognize that that is an integral component of how we translate higher education into a meaningful opportunity for our students. And we don't have a choice because so many of our students are opting out of higher education now at this point. So we have to be able to demonstrate the value added that our unique ecosystem of higher education provides. Uh, and they have to feel supported to be able to make that work for themselves. And we have to be able to see now how high that bar is that students have to reach to be able to make it work for themselves. And, that, and not just take it for granted that they're just going to show up indefinitely because that because students always have been going to higher uh, pursuing higher education, which isn't actually a true thing. It's just a mythology. <laughs> you know, the broadened access is a relatively modern phenomenon. But um, but yeah, they're not just going to come just because we we think we say that they are, you know. We, we have to be able to, to articulate the value added. And in places like New England, that's never been more important because of the demographic realities we face. Right, well, and, and are you hopeful? Or are you more hopeful or less hopeful and why? I'm more hopeful because I think this has been a, a shock to the system of higher education that this idea that uh, we can just passively continue to operate the way we always have and that that's just going to work forever. I think this is brought into very clear, crystal clear reality for so many people who are completely uninvested in any kind of change uh, to recognize, oh, like our, if we don't have students, we're not here. 
And if they're not willing to, to, to do the hard work and, and, and make the sacrifices in their own lives, we're not here. And if we're not willing to do what we need to do to be able to make it work for them and to orient ourselves, to be student-centered in how we approach our work, um, that we're not just here to produce research, <laughs> you know, and it, it doesn't mean that that's, that's always going to be important in higher education, but, you know, um, but we have to prepare our students um, to be able to be competitive. Uh, and I think we're also starting to understand that within the global landscape that we're, you know, especially in the United States, to, we're not destined to be this uh, purely inherently this um, top country in the world that, you know, we're in a globally competitive reality. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we see that international students aren't going to just choose the United States no matter what, right? Because now there's starting to be options in other countries, including people's home countries. And, and we're starting to see um, various nations innovate in technology and, um, and and so forth. So we're not the default automatically anymore. We have to be compelling. Uh, and, and I think there's starting to be a recognition. Uh, and I see that with faculty, that there's a, a greater investment in, in like uh, the, the enrollment uh, you know, uh, process and, and being concerned, you know, are, are we getting the enrollment? Are we making a compelling case to prospective students uh, of what we have to offer? Mm, indeed. So let me pivot here and ask you to talk a little bit about specific practices that mm. you are seeing that you believe are especially effective in moving the needle on social justice, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on academic affairs because, as you know, uh, I I've I've said this for a long time. It's the hardest part of advancing diversity, equity, inclusion work in higher education. That you know, student affairs as a field has rapidly changed over the last 20 years. But a lot of the disconnect for our students, you know, especially in the residential institution, if you're living in a residence hall, and you you're probably having conversations of what it means to be living in an inclusive community uh, together. Uh, but, you know, five minutes later, you can be in a classroom and none of that applies, potentially. Uh, and so I think the work with our faculty, and I will say, I've, been, I've seen faculty more invested um, than ever before in creating more inclusive learning spaces for our students. Uh, I think the last couple of years have, have really cr- created a lot of sensitivity amongst faculty, the desire, the, the interest. I, I think we need to create the incentives, the time, the energy, the resources invested in our faculty for them to prioritize inclusive teaching. But I think one practice that I think is particularly powerful are creating p- communities of practice where faculty can be resources for one another, you know, and that uh, uh, administrators like myself and my team you know, to be resources for faculty who want to be resources for their colleagues, right? Um, so that, you know, let's just say on a monthly basis, you know, colleagues are having conversations on where they're finding successes, where they're finding challenges in the classroom, and building that institutional best practice around inclusive teaching. I, I, th- I think that is an absolute critical component of the work going forward. How important is representation? It is. It is critically important and, and from at University of Vermont, you know, we feel that. We feel that strongly that that we 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 know that we need representation. We know that um, our, our student population is and will continue to diversify and that we need to have a diverse faculty and staff and we and we need retention 
right? We need, we have, we need the environment in which people want to stay, right? Whether it's faculty, staff, or students, right? Um, so representation matters, but we also have to have that broad-based skill capacity building for, with everybody working on it so that, you know, um, so that students who have faculty members that are not of a background of their own and identity of their own still feel that level of support and still feel that investment and commitment in their success that they, that they uh, feel the support and, and they are able to translate that into success. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the 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 point about faculty retention is also very critical. I think sometimes institutions put a lot of effort into recruiting diverse faculty and staff, but then they think the job is done and they don't think about what it's like as a diverse person to live within a majority kind of uh, culture and how, how important it is to be very intentional um, about about shaping that culture so it's inclusive for everybody. Absolutely, and, and you know, the same skills that we need for the classroom, we need to enact with our colleagues, you know? And, and it is a learning process, but I, you know, I just, even with University of Vermont, you know, it's, it's you know, the, a lot of people who've been living in Burlington area, they, they really love it. You know they they love it, but but in the process there isn't always a recognition of why that might be why it might be a challenging place to move to or consider seriously as a person of color. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind with Baypath University, our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. Amir, I would like to start this second half by asking you to delve more deeply into the kinds of challenges that diverse individuals often encounter when they relocate to a new region. Even one like the University of Vermont that's known for its diversity on so many different levels. 
And even still, you found challenges that may not be obvious to those from a majority background. So can you say more about this? Housing is, is, is not cheap up there, and it's, it's not uh, always easy to find something. And, you know, I think I had at least a dozen people who were deeply committed to DEI, very passionate around social justice issues, but were, would say to me and to other people of color, just, just look further out for a place to live. And it's like, well, you know, a lot of us don't feel safe, you know, living that far out, especially if we have children, you know, what kind of uh, school situation are they going to be in? And then that creates a challenge around like, well, now I don't even know if I can listen to your advice around the schools. Because if, if you don't recognize that, that, you know, I don't feel comfortable living in a, a, a you know, certain distance from the metro area, then um, you probably are not weighing, weighing the, the school aspect, right? And so it's not that I, I'm, you know, that that creates um, conflict, but it, it kind of creates a sense of like, okay, well, maybe my colleague is not someone that I look to for support to navigate this environment because that person may not be aware of some of the things uh, that we navigate. And, and I think that translated into a set of resources that just weren't there to um, help our uh, prospective faculty and current faculty and staff know about all that the Burlington area had to offer. And so one of the first low-hanging fruit things that I, I saw the need for was for us to just create a cultural resource guide just for folks to be aware, hey, Burlington has all different kinds of stuff. Um, and our, our K through 12 system is half people of color. Our Winooski across the river is more than half people of color. Like, you know, and, and we have these restaurants and these ethnic grocery stores and these LGBTQ resources. And, and you know, a lot of folks don't who aren't from there don't know that. But, but the, a lot of the people that had been there didn't know to convey those things uh, to people, both to prospective people as well as their colleagues that were still there. Um, and, and so, again, if we, if we don't make it something that works for people in their lives, they're not, why should they make it work for themselves? And they can just, you know, hope most likely pursue other opportunities. And, and sure. that, cause, that causes the attrition. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Now for senior leaders, of which you are now one, and boards of trustees who want to create and cultivate a more equitable and inclusive culture on their campuses, where do you start? Do you have like a top uh, most important two or three things that you would recommend? What What's most essential, particularly if you're starting from a, a, a place of ground zero, really? Yeah, and you know, I think that the the point you make about board of trustees is particularly important, and I know that's work that um, that Bay Path uh, University has worked on. And yeah, I mean, that gets back to your representation question. It matters, right? That boards need to have representation of people from different trajectories. And I know for Bay Path, you all looked at, uh, you know, broadening your criteria for how you get that representation. But then there's also that skill and competency building that you got to do at the board level. Um, similarly to what you're doing throughout the institution, um, because if the board is not uh, developing those skills and those those competencies and, and, and the recognition of the landscape that we're in, there, I mean, again, there's a demographic reality. You know, I think sometimes people think that 
all, the argument on DEI is always a moral and ethical argument. And I'm not, yes, there is a moral and ethical argument. There's also a business case. <laughs> there, there's also a demographic reality. And your board needs to be in tune with, with both of those cases, the moral and ethical case in terms of higher education as a public good and being able to create those pathways of access and doing um, the fundraising uh, to, to create pathways for first gen and low income and, uh, and underrepresented student populations. But then also understanding that there's a number of institutions that are about to not survive this demographic cliff of 2025. That is, in New England, we're already there, you know, and, and so we don't have a choice and you know institutions like university of vermont what i what i've been saying is that we have to compete on a national level and and that's that's really a big part of our strategy as an institution going forward is that we're not just going to be this institution that simply attracts students from the east coast or from new england we're recruiting nationally and we have to compete and we have to make it a compelling experience for students that competes with institutions in every part of this country. Um, and if we don't, and if our board doesn't have, a, it isn't, isn't attuned to that, right? How can you set priorities, especially with regards to budget and, and resources? So can you say a little bit more about uh, the, the board in terms of how do you uh, broaden the, qualifications, for example, in what way might you broaden the qualifications uh, with the board to be able to attract a more diverse uh, set of board members? Yeah, well, too many boards are pay to play, you know, and, and again, and this is something I know um, Bay Path worked on, is that, that there needs to be more than uh, more criteria. And, and again, we know that, you know, that there's a lot of boards prioritizing this right now. So then there's uh, different representation of individuals who are getting asked to be on lots of boards and that's great. But then again, how do we look at, at, at uh, who they're mentoring, right? And how, and, and you know, that, that next generation of board members, who's in our alumni base? Right. Who, who's that, you know, are we working with our alumni relations and our, and uh, in our um, uh, uh, our our donor base and our fund our our funding base uh, and are they in tune? This gets into why every sector of institutions, including the development area, needs to integrate DEI into every aspect of what they do. Because if they don't have that connection to the networks and the constituencies that our institutions are connected to, including our own alums, you know, our, there's no way our board is going to be able to to uh, to tap into that broader network. Uh, that's out there. So those connections and relationships can allow us to be able to identify um, talent uh, of folks that are out there. Uh, but again, it goes back to that criteria, which again, I think Baypath did a great job of prioritizing, of broadening out that criteria and making sure that board representation wasn't simply just pay to play. Well, we did, but I, I can also remember it being um, quite uh, a dynamic conversation because when you begin to try and unpack what qualifies somebody and uh, the whole notion, I, I remember that there was, um, there was a little bit of uh, uh, heated discussion around the question of should we broaden the qualifications simply to diversify the board. And there were some who felt that that was 
not necessarily an appropriate thing to do. So, mm-hmm. which brings me to my next question, which is from your experience, what gets in the way? Um, what are some of the things that gets in the way of efforts to become more inclusive, to achieve inclusive excellence? I think it's it's the actual experience of individuals, including board members, like so many people are so insulated and disconnected from the realities of various communities and constituencies uh, that, that it's just not real in their lives and they don't have the relationships and the connections and they don't have they, they, they don't necessarily always see the value of, of what that representation brings. And again, that's part of why I made that point around not viewing DEI as purely a moral and ethical argument, right? Because I think some board members in particular are not, are not compelled by that. They're like, hey, this, this institution needs to survive in terms of resources. We need to have the resources to be able to thrive as an institution. Well, there, there isn't always the recognition that, well, this institution is not going to survive if, if demographics of, uh, of prospective students, uh, of alums are discon- uh, disconnected from our institution and don't feel um, that there's a reason to be connected to, to it. And um, there isn't always an awareness of the kind of narratives that exist about uh, our institutions, like I can talk to any alum of color from my my uh, uh, alma mater, Miami University. We know how a lot of us feel about the experiences that we had and why many of us don't desire to donate. Um, you know, and and the reality is that you know I know for myself, I need to see that there's a seriousness at every level of the institution in their commitment to to transform the culture. Um, and not just do kind of performative tokenism or um, or just kind of an add-on thing that's not really connected to the overall uh, direction and culture of the institution. Uh, we, we've seen that. We, we've seen we've seen enough of the kind of DEI as an add-on or as as tokenization. There, there's plenty of that to go around, and 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 um, you know a lot of a lot of folks see through that. You know, and so it's got to become embodied and it starts with relationship building and on a competency and skill level, it's about empathy, you know, and when I say empathy, I'm not talking about sympathy, I'm saying validating the experiences of others as true for them. So that requires you wanting to learn and understand what the, what are those experiences, you know, and how do we create the environment where people want to share those experiences and feel comfortable sharing those experiences so that we can harness those experiences and translate that in, into how we pivot going forward as an institution. Absolutely. You, you, uh, you wrapped it up. You tied it together very nicely. So <laughs> in the few minutes that we have left on there, I want to ask you about resources. Mm-hmm. And I know that that you know, one of the things that sometimes stops institutions is that they don't have in-house resources uh, to know what to do or how to start. And so uh, do you have a few resources that you recommend? Um, and then and then I do want you to talk about the new endeavor that you are uh involved with that's very, very exciting and is certainly a resource that uh institutions could take advantage of? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, th- I do think that institutions have to balance what is realistic in terms of what you can have in-house um, versus what are the things that you can um, bring from the outside. And, and 
you know, with technology, there's, um, there's a, uh, you know, we're increasingly seeing uh, that as related to our learning management systems um, and a lot of our operations. And especially, I think, going forward with understaffing, we're going to have to find ways to use technology to be a little bit more effective in how we operate. And I think that's just as true in the DEI space as well. And, you know, one of the, the frustrations in DEI work I, I, I had had for so long is that, you know, we know that capacity building, skill, competency building, um, it needs to be embedded in every aspect of our institutional culture and professional and faculty development. But um, there's been so few scalable solutions and we all know that the off the shelf check the box stuff. And so a couple of years ago, uh, a colleague and my, myself began uh, working on developing a scalable solution for institutions to build that capacity and and work and get help folks work on those skills and competencies that I've been discussing. And so um, a colleague of mine, Bert Verkamer, he he created something known as the, as the global competence certificate. It was, you know, intercultural skills for for the for the global space, but I you know, and it, it was such a quality product and they, he embedded, he brought me in as a consultant to bring an equity lens to that. But when I, when I came across it, I said, we don't have anything comparable in the DEI space for that. So we just spent the last two years developing um, a scalable blended learning tool with modules, um, but then also embed communities of practice into the process so that it's not simply just something that you purely do on your own but yet you still have those asynchronous opportunities for learning. Uh, and, and most importantly, as a person who's worked with faculty on inclusive pedagogy, I felt like there was nothing on, in terms of inclusive pedagogy for frontline faculty to learn how to strengthen their, their um, inclusive teaching practices. So we developed a product called Equip and the, and the website's equipinclusive.com. And, and we, we our back third is entirely on inclusive pedagogy because I, I, it is so difficult to scale out uh, giving faculty the tools that they need, even if they if they're looking for it, even if they want it. Um, you know, many institutions have varying levels of in-house staffing around centers for teaching. Um, there's le various levels of expertise in centers for teaching in terms of inclusive pedagogy. So, uh, and, I, and I think increasingly centers for teaching need to work with DEI professionals as, as, as collaborative partners, which is what we're doing at University of Vermont going forward around how we uh, uh, proliferate those skills and competencies um, in, in institutions. And so we're really excited about Equip being what we, we believe is an incredibly strong product and tool for institutions to be able to enact that, knowing that most institutions don't have the in-house expertise and, and staffing levels to be able uh, to, to proliferate that on the scale that's needed in their institutions. Well, and you were kind enough to share uh, some of the videos with me, and I, I've never seen anything like it uh, in terms of what's on the shelf, as you say. So kudos mm -hmm. to you. I mean, this is obviously going to, going to meet a very important uh, important need. And is it available now? Is it available for it purchase is. yet? Yep. It is. We've, we've been in soft launch mode for a few months, just talking to institutions that are directly in my network. Uh, we're, we're talking to a number of institutions, but we are uh, literally transitioning from uh, soft launch to wide launch. And, and that really starts with, um, 
our um, attendance at NADAHI, the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education, because we know there's so many diversity officers looking for this tool. Um, and, and just even the feedback we've gotten from the institutions we've talked to has been amazing. So I really appreciate you saying that. That means a lot coming from you. Um, and we, we've been hearing great things from folks. And, and it's, it's really primarily my curriculum uh, of, of content that I've been doing with institutions for a number of years. And, you know, I've, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, I can't replicate myself. I can't duplicate myself everywhere. And, uh, but I believe in the curriculum, and I've seen, I've seen the the impact for institutions. And so, to have a partner who who knew how to develop this and 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 and, and get it into an, a learning management system that's usable for institutions, um, it, it's been a great journey. I've learned a lot, um, and, and I'm I'm really excited for it's it's the tool that as a CDO. I want to be able to have access, you know, and uh, I know that um, my colleagues, whether it's the Center for Teaching, whether it's a provost, whoever it is, I know that they're going to feel excited, uh, uh, whether they have a diversity officer or not, excited about having a tool that can meaningfully uh, move the needle, but also raise the floor in terms of the foundational skills that you know are, um, are available within your institution. Yeah, no, and I, I think one of the things I really appreciated is that with so many of these uh, self-paced training modules, and all of our colleges and universities use some of these for HR purposes, um, but, but a lot of times it's really canned. It feels mm -hmm. very canned. Um, this does not feel canned, first of all, and secondly, um, it, it's obvious that somebody who is an educator had a significant hand in in shaping this so it's interesting to hear that, that this is your curriculum um because it, yeah, it, it does it reflects that academic sensitivity which i think in order to get faculty to buy into this and to appreciate it that's really that's very very important absolutely and it, and it can set set things up for that deeper uh uh work that uh that faculty can have ownership of, over in terms of uh, deepening those communities of practices within their respective area. But again, laying that foundation, I find that to, to be incredibly important so that there's a shared uh, language, shared competencies and skills that folks recognize as, as integral, uh, and then making it their own within their own departments, within the schools and colleges, within their institutions. Yeah, no, for sure. So the link that you gave, again, mm -hmm. uh, if somebody wants to go to the site and learn more, uh, can you tell me again the website yeah, link? Yeah, it's equipinclusive.com, E-Q-U-I-P-inclusive.com. No, no dashes or anything like that. Okay. And yeah, folks can get a familiarity with it and then, you know, reach out to us. We'll, we're happy to have the conversation with folks. Okay, and we'll we'll include that link in the show notes uh, for easy for easy access. So, Amir, I am so uh, grateful for this time. It's always so good to connect with you, and I'm very excited about the new work that you're doing. And uh, let me just ask you in closing, what are you excited about? Is there something you're is there something that you're working on, or some new innovation or idea that just has your has, has you captured? 
Yeah, well, as you know, that I'm very passionate around the bridging of global education and DEI. And so I'm also um, working on creating a professional development product uh, at that intersection to, for us to get out of this kind of bifurcated way of thinking about DEI and global education as these two distinctly separate things, because uh, I don't view them as such. In fact, at UVM, we're, we're going to have a global component of our DEI strategic plan. I, I, I've engaged institutions that have separate plans that, that don't speak to each other. And, and I, I think that we need to start thinking more synergistically in, in higher ed, and we need to have professionals and faculty that are sitting at those intersections and that are proliferating and cultivating that. And so, uh, so I am working on something called, called Global Inclusion, and the website is global-inclusion.com, and, and that's just a professional development um, experience uh, for folks to kind of operate and pro provide some language, provide some uh, frameworks to think about uh, how do you enact that synergistic approach to, to bridging DEI and global education in our in our organizations. Okay, well, we'll include that. We'll include that link in the show notes as well. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time and for the opportunity to get caught up. And I wish you all the best with, with these efforts and everything else that I know is going to come your way in the in the months uh, and years to come. Thanks so much, Melissa, and thank you for continuing to be a leading voice in advancing the conversation in higher ed. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CHALUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.